Well, good morning, church. I think most of people probably got the word, most likely through Facebook, but if you were expecting Dan Henley this morning, I am not he. Uh, COVID strikes again, and uh, I got a call on uh, Christmas Eve in the afternoon, and he said, Jerry, we've been exposed to COVID, and we cannot fly down and be with the family and be with you guys. So uh, that said, oh boy, uh, I got to get a message together for Sunday that wasn't quite expected, and, but I, I was good. I took Christmas off, and, but while I was cooking and preparing meals, I have to confess my mind was running around thinking, what do I want to speak on, and, and what does the Lord put on my heart? And, and I just kind of came back to the book of Hebrews. That kept coming back to me, the, the book of Hebrews, which is where we started uh, this study, uh, our theme this year on by faith. Uh, I love the book of Hebrews. Um, it's, it's one of three New Testament books that really gives commentary and explanation in detail to that little verse in Habakkuk. Remember back in September, we went through the book of Habakkuk, and we looked at one verse in particular in one of those messages, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. And so, you know, Paul, in writing the book of Romans, he, he focuses on the just part of that verse, and what it means to be justified and to be declared righteous by God, to have Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. And then he writes the book of Ephesians, and in a very real sense, it's the shall live part of the just shall live by faith. And in that book, he helps us understand how our life is in Christ, that we're united with Christ, that our home is in heaven, and what it means to live in Christ, to to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. The book of Ephesians helps give commentary to the shall live part. Well, the book of Hebrews, and we don't know that, that Paul authored the book of Hebrews, but there's a good chance that he did. And certainly it was somebody that was in Paul's circle of close associates, maybe Timothy or Luke or somebody like that, if it's not Paul. And the book of Hebrews, it comes to that little phrase and it explains how God enables us to actually experience the life by which we are justified, a life of faith. Um, but we're not going to go back to Hebrews 11. That's where we were back in September. I did the first six verses, I think, of chapter 11. This morning, I want us to read the first three verses of chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Chapter 12 starts with that little word, therefore. That word clues us in that he is about to draw conclusions, make applications on everything that has come in the previous 11 chapters. 
And so we need to take just a moment and we need to set some context here of what's been said in the book of Hebrews so that we interpret and we apply Romans 12 properly. Uh, Apparently, what was happening in this church that the author's writing to was that Jewish men and women, that's why it's called Hebrews, right? Uh, They had, uh, there are several of these folks who had begun to uh, investigate Christ. They were intrigued with Jesus. They were wondering if he was the promised Messiah. They had begun to engage with the gospel and with the new covenant community and had experienced and seen for themselves the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit within this church. However, uh, some of them, for various reasons, um, decided that, no, Christ is not the Messiah, and uh, they walked away from the faith. Some of these folks were actually what we would call new converts, and so they were committing the sin of apostasy And they were rejecting Christ in that apostatizing way and walking away from them. And this in turn was tempting others to reconsider and ask questions. And had they got it wrong? Had they they aligned with the wrong person? Did they need to return to Judaism and the way of the law and the old covenant and the temple and all of its worship? And so the book of Hebrews is written to these people who are Their faith is being rocked by the apostasy that's taking place. And so he's speaking with people who are grappling with this tension. And so what he does is in the first 10 chapters, he essentially shows them how no matter who they compare Jesus to or what they compare Jesus to, he is superior to everything that they know. So he starts with angels and the prophets, and he says, shows how Jesus is superior to them. And then, of course, the big figure in Jewish history, Moses, and he proves to them that, he is, that Jesus is far superior to Moses, and that the covenant that Jesus brings us, the new covenant, is even more grand and superior to the old covenant that Moses mediated. And then he goes to, to Aaron, who was the high priest, and Melchizedek, the high priest of the, of the Old Testament. And he, again, shows that Jesus is superior to them. And then he finally takes on the temple itself and the whole sacrificial system and everything that's involved in that belief system. And he shows them that Jesus is not only superior to them, that all of these things that they are giving their allegiance to actually point to Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And so why would they ever commit their life to the, to the type or to the shadow when they can have the reality to which all these things point to. And then kind of as, a, as the closing illustration of this, of this sermon, he comes to chapter 11. And we've looked at some of the, the verses in chapter 11, but that's called the hall of fame of faith. He, just, he starts with Adam and he works his way through all of the great patriarchs, men and women of the old covenant, the old Testament, who were people of faith. And he shows them that these individuals were not redeemed and made right with God because they perfectly obeyed the law or participated in the sacrificial system, but that these men and women were great people of faith because they were looking forward in anticipation to the coming of Jesus. And now we have the luxury of looking back in appreciation for everything that Jesus has done for us. And we can, we can, so therefore, we can become even more equipped, understanding how Jesus fulfills everything that God had been planning since the fall in the Garden of Eden. So if the just shall live by faith, 
If we're to live by faith as all these great men and women of old in chapter 11 did, how does this become a reality in our lives? How does God bring this about? That's what we're coming to in chapter 12. In chapter 12 and the rest of the book, it answers these questions. And so this morning, we're just looking at the first three verses. And from it, we're going to pull out two gospel applications that help us understand how we become people of faith. Two daily, practical, very practical, God-empowered applications that explain to us how we're to respond to the gospel and believe so that we can become people who have a vibrant, powerful faith. So first of all, first application, all of us, we need to identify and reject everything that is holding us back in our life with Christ. He says in verse one, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And then he goes into a metaphor. In fact, the metaphor is a large part of this passage a metaphor that is involving a race. And this is another reason why people think that perhaps Paul really is the author of the book of Hebrews, because in so many of his books, Paul will employ a metaphor to help the audience understand what it means to be a Christian. So for example, when you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, he uses a military metaphor, and we're to be good soldiers of Christ. And Ephesians chapter 6, he uses the metaphor of spiritual warfare and putting on the, the armor of God. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul was apparently a boxing fan. Maybe if he'd been alive today, it would have been the UFC. And he, he talks and he compares it to us not boxing and striking or shadow boxing, but actually hitting our target and training like a boxer should do. In Romans 1, it's the metaphor of a bond servant. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, the metaphor is that of a race. And now many of you, you are runners. Uh, believe it or not, before I blew out both of my Achilles tendons uh, back in uh, many years back, I used to also do quite a bit of running. And those of you who are running, uh, or those of you who remember what it's like to run a race, you know that there's certain things that are true, right? For example, uh, when you are, uh, well, in fact, Probably some of you, maybe you aren't running to run a race, but you're running because you want to lose some superfluous weight, right? You might exercise in that way. And, and you know that when you train, say for a race, like our community has all these 5Ks, it seems like every week, every week there's a 5K somewhere on the Space Coast. And when you're training for one of these 5Ks, one of your objectives is to, to not only shed any excess pounds, but to strengthen your muscles, to, to, to get into conditions so that you can run the very best race that you can. And you work your best to get rid of everything that would stop you from maybe hopefully at least breaking your personal best, right? Your personal best record, that's something you always keep track of. And you, you go to all of this. And then when race day comes, um, you want to run your best time. And so here's what you don't do. You don't put on real bulky clothes, right? You, you have just the lightest little shirt and the, you know, the lightest pair of shorts. And you'll spend, so if you have it, you'll spend extra money to get the lightest pair of shoes that you can possibly get, right? And so that you are optimized for your race. You don't, you don't wear bulky clothes and, and you don't ever see people running, you know, a 5K, unless it's one of the goofy Christmas ones where Santa gets out there in his Santa suit. 
And it's a serious 5K. They're not wearing bulky clothes. They don't put on a backpack with every possible accessory that they might feel like they could, you know, here's my sunscreen and, you know, yada, yada, you know, and maybe throw in a 25-pound barbell in that, back way, that, that backpack. You don't see that when people are running a race because, you know, you can't run your best race when you're bogged down with all that extra weight. And, and that's the point that we need to get out of this, the beginning of this of verse one, to be people of faith, God, that, that, to be the people of faith that God redeems us to be, we have to reject and discard everything that weighs us down and hinders our growth in the gospel. Now, few of us would disagree with that statement, especially as it relates to sin, right? And, and sinful desires and sinful temptations, maybe uh, those things that are just obviously immoral or perhaps a sinful habit. Any of us who've struggled with a sinful habit at any point in our lives, we know Oh, how this can bring about shame and discouragement in our lives. Uh, when we indulge our sinful di- desires, especially when it's a desire that, again, is linked to maybe a habit that's in our lives, um, you don't enjoy the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. And you doubt your standing with God, and your faith is not very vibrant, and you certainly don't experience that freedom and joy and victory that is ours in Jesus Christ when you're in bondage to a sinful habit. This is, you know, this is one of the reasons, church, why we stress living authentically in biblical community with one another, why we, why, why we encourage you, if you, this is going on in your life, to, to have people in your life that you can be authentic with, to engage in like our recovery ministry and our discipleship ministries here at the church so that we can get freedom and enjoy who we actually are in Christ and see the chains of this kind of habitual sin broken in our lives because these types of chains, they weigh us down and we cannot become the people of faith and live that victorious life of faith that God wants for us and for which Jesus died to give us. It won't happen when we're in that kind of bondage. And so that's you, I hope, You'll take advantage and understand that every one of us here at one time or another have had these struggles or have these struggles right now. You don't have to be ashamed. You just have to step forward and say, I'd like some help and let us help you in this. You know, but sometimes the things that aren't holding us back, that are holding us back, aren't inherently sinful. They aren't inherently automatically immoral and wrong, Right? It's easy to see where this verse is true for the things that are automatically immoral, but what about the things that aren't? So for example, in the early church, in this church here, these Jewish converts, um, they were still observing maybe the festivals that are come from the Old Testament, different ceremonies that are in, that are part of the Old Covenant. They were observing the Sabbath and maybe some of the dietary restrictions. And these observances were not automatically sinful and wrong, but they did have the potential to distract these new converts, to be used by others to to bring them back into a legalistic bondage. Um, It could cause them to not enjoy their freedom in Christ, and that was some of the things that would happen. So for us, though, it's probably not observing the old covenant observances that, uh, that, you know, have the potential to to weigh us down as so many other things in our lives, activities perhaps, or hobbies or long-held beliefs that again, they aren't inherently immoral. 
They aren't automatically sinful, but they do have the potential to stunt our growth as Christians. And it's hard to tell when a hobby or uh, involvement in a cause or an activity, it's hard to tell when that morphs from being something that's enjoyable and edifying into something that hinders our Christian growth or maybe even into something that becomes idolatrous and sinful. So we're in a, a sports metaphor here, right, in, in uh, Hebrews, and in particular running. I can think through the years, <laughs> I was never afflicted with this, but <clears throat> I can think of people through the years who got so involved in, for example, running or some form of exercise. I remember 20 years ago, it was Tybo. Do y'all remember Tybo? You know, that guy? And so, yes, yeah, some of you are nodding your head, but... Uh, you know, these things come along and people get involved in it. And, and, and there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. But some people, you know, you know what happens? You start shedding pounds. Something clicks and you get motivated and you shed pounds and the muscles start packing on. You start looking slimmer and trimmer and better. And then that day comes when somebody at church comes up and go, hey, are you losing weight? What are you doing? And man, does that ever feel good, Right. That feels really good. And, and listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. In fact, it's good to take care of our bodies. But sometimes, for some people, that activity that can be very beneficial becomes spiritually damaging because their entire life revolves around fill in the blank, whatever that thing is. I used to pastor a church where it seemed like all the men in the church raised hunting dogs and but come August 1st, every guy, and I mean, I preached to a church filled with women or men who were too old to hunt, right? And from August 1st to January 1st, they were gone. For six solid months, hunting took precedent in their life, and they had no interaction with the body of God. Listen, there's nothing inherently evil with hunting, okay? But it has the potential in some people's lives to become idolatrous, a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, an obsession. These are the things that weigh us down. Uh, recently, I was at a restaurant, and it, it was pretty empty. It was pretty quiet. And, you know, because it's COVID, uh, a, a party of about eight men came in, and the waitress decided to sit them right, right by me, you know, <laughs> not on the other side of the restaurant, but, you know, within, easily within earshot. It's a group of middle-aged men except for one teenage boy. And this teenager was, this teenage boy was the biggest chatterer I've ever seen in a teenage, because most of the time when teenage boys hit around 15, they just stopped talking till about 22, right? But this boy did not have that problem. And he was just talking and talking and talking. And at one point, and I, and I wasn't trying to eavesdrop it, but I mean, they were like from me to less than Keith away. And, and I heard this boy ask, his, one of the men was his dad, and he said, dad, do you really hate the Seminoles or are you just kidding around? And when he asked that question, the whole table erupted in laughter and all the men started telling stories about this guy and how he feels about the Seminoles. And finally, the dad spoke up. And boy, what he said, it became very clear that yes, he really, really, really hated the Seminoles. You know, and what he said to his son, it struck such a deep chord in my heart. You know, 
So honestly, when I paid my bill, I felt compelled to stop by the table. And uh, I put my hand on his shoulder and I introduced myself. I said, fellas, I'm Jerry uh, Clem. I'm the senior pastor over at Covenant Church. And I couldn't help but overhear what all was being said and especially what was said by you, dad. And uh, so young man, I want you to know something. I said, uh, you need to go home this evening and you need to pray about your dad. You need to pray to God and you need to thank him for giving you such a fantastic father. Go Gators! <laughs> and the whole table erupts in laughter, right? You know? We, <laughs> uh, you know, we have fun with these kinds of things. And, uh, but if we're honest, sometimes good things, even like support for our sports team, can become an ultimate thing, and it ends up stunning our growth in the gospel. Good things can become ultimate things, and then in turn, they weigh us down. There's so many things like this in our lives. Food, well, that's one through the years. I, I always struggle. I love to cook it, and I love to eat it. It's a good thing. Can become an idol, right, that you struggle with. A drink, um, you know, hobbies, a, a, a political party. We saw this, we just come out of election series, and I'm sorry to, to say that as you look through social media, it was clear that for many Christians, a good thing, involvement in their political party, love for their country be, had become an ultimate thing. And that weighs you down. That hinders your walk of faith. It affects our ability to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. Um, social causes. Uh, people get so wrapped up in one particular cause or another that they forget that the cause that is supposed to have our allegiance first and foremost in our life is the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. It's not a social cause, as good as that cause may be. Our choices in entertainment, how we spend our money, how we use our free time. These are all things that are not necessarily evil and sinful in themselves, but they have the ability to weigh us down so that we do not become the people of faith that God wants us to be. So it's really important for all of us as we come to these areas in our lives to ask some important questions. We have to ask, is this activity hurting me spiritually? Is this cause, is this hobby, is this you know, uh, system that I'm a part of, is, is it helping me spiritually? As much as we ask, is it hurting? How about, is it helping? Because we only have so much time in our lives. Shouldn't we be giving that time to things that help us be stronger men and women of God? Is this ultimate thing, is this good thing becoming an ultimate thing? Has it, has it reached a level where it's, it, it smells a little bit like idolatry? We, we have to ask these things. We have to see that some of these things can weigh us down. And then when God reveals it to us, make course correction. So we identify and we reject everything that is holding us back. Secondly, we embrace the life God gives us by relying on Christ and the truth of the gospel. The author says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary 
or faint-hearted. Now listen, there's a lot that could be said. In fact, there's probably two or three messages in just those three verses, but we only have about 10 minutes left. So um, I'm going to just make a couple of uh, several really, I think, important basic points for us to understand from these verses. First thing I want you to get is this. God has assigned for us a race to run, or since it's a metaphor, right, to explain the more metaphor, he, is, he has assigned for us a life to live, right? Um, he set it before us. He has a plan for our lives, and he calls on us to live our life according to his will. He's given us a lane to run in, okay? Uh, and in other words, I think what, one of the things that we should draw from this is how important it is if we're going to be people of faith, living a life of faith, for us to discern what our purpose is in life and then fulfill that role in the kingdom of God, to fulfill that calling that God has for us as part of his plan to magnify his name in this earth, to live it according to his will. So we should live the life that he gives us and live it according to his will. Secondly, this life he gives us is to be, profound moment, run. This is an intentional word, that word run. To run a race, to train for it, to engage with it, to strive to do the best that we possibly can with the gifts that God gives us. We all understand, right, what it takes to run a race, to compete, to win the prize. Even those of us who never really ran track, when the Olympics, for example, come around, we will tune in to track and field, right? And we just, we delight in watching these finely tuned, incredible athletes run for 100 meters or for 400 meters or maybe running the marathon because you can watch what they're doing and you instinctively know how, how much they have been working at this point for their life to simply get across the finish line and maybe win a medal, right? We all understand that there is a huge difference between sprinting in a relay or running a marathon and what we might do on a nice Florida day and go down to the beach and meander along the water, right? Mosey along. There's a huge difference between running a race and moseying for a little day hike. You know, the Olympics does not have a medal for moseying, does it? Or meandering around the track. They don't give medals for that. Medals are given to those who run the race, not just mosey along as their whims and desires strike them. So the question we have to ask ourselves in this way is this, are we intentionally, are we actively living life according to God's will for his purposes, for his glory, or are we simply meandering through life, living it according to just however we feel like living it, our desires and whatever, whatever. How we answer that will say much about our faith and our, our growth in the gospel. A third thing I want you to see here is that this life that he assigns for us will not always be pleasant. It will not always be easy. This word run comes, the underlying Greek word is the word agon, from which we get the English word agony. That says a lot, doesn't it? We don't become 
uh, people with a strong, vibrant faith by just moseying through life, living it as we want to, however we please. No, God calls on us to embrace His will, His calling, His purpose for our lives, to live according to His will, to run the race that He has given us. Embracing this call can be incredibly fruitful. It brings incredible joy and blessings, but make no mistake, it will not always be easy. There will be times of severe testing and trial and tribulation, even agonizing times of pain and challenge. At times, it can be so agonizing and painful, like those Jewish folks in the first century, we can be tempted to to just walk away, to apostatize. The Apostle James, you know, he, he's another uh, who wrote an epistle that deals with faith. And his epistle, like this chapter, is very much about faith in action, faith that is being lived out. And so it's interesting that in his epistle that speaks so much about faith in action, he begins it with this exhortation. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. 2020 has brought all kinds of challenges to us, challenges that for many of us are unlike anything we've ever experienced before. And we can't wait for 2020 to be done, right? But I got news for you, 2021 is gonna have its own set of challenges. It's gonna have its own set of difficulties. Do you ever have any year that doesn't have something that stretches you, that, I mean, some years are worse than others, but I've never had a year that I would say was a cakewalk, right? And so 2021 is going to have its own challenges and difficulties. Will we embrace the challenges? Will we face these difficulties that come our way and see God mold us into people of faith? Or will we walk away from it? Say, I'm done with this. Like so many have done to Christ and to the new covenant community through the centuries. This is why verses 2 and 3 are so important. We have this life and purpose that God has given us. He calls on us us to live it for his glory, but there's going to be great challenges. So how do we do this? And this is where verses two and three are so important because they tell us that the only way we get through these kinds of challenges is to put our eyes upon Christ, to fixate on him. If our faith is going to grow, even through challenging times, if, if those if the, the crucible that we go through, the fire and the heat that we experience, if it's to become a redeeming, purifying experience, that only happens if we fixate on Jesus and we rest in him during that trial, looking to him, trusting at him, relying upon him for the strength and the understanding and the encouragement that we can only get from the gospel and from Christ. The entire book of Hebrews The author is showing, right, as I mentioned, how Jesus is superior to everything and everyone that we could look to instead of him. This epistle, like no other, reveals Jesus to us. It reveals his humanity. We see his humanity in the book of Hebrews. And we know that we have someone that we can go to with all of our concerns, with all of our frailties, all of our fears, 
all of our sin, and he will not reject us. He is that high priest that's on the right hand of the throne of God, as this passage tells us, who understands that we are made of dust. And whatever we're facing, whether it be a temptation to sin, whether it be discouragement from a situation in our life, whether it be a doubt because of, of a life event that's happening and we don't know which direction to go, we can take it all to Jesus, we can pour it out to him, and we know that he will respond with grace and with mercy. And his book also shows us his deity in full flavor. It starts right there. Hebrews 1 has the strongest statement on the deity of Christ, I think, in the entire scriptures. Maybe John 1 rivals it. But it starts right there. And that's important because when we see his deity, we know that when he promises to give us the power that we need to overcome whatever challenge or foe that we face, he has the ability to deliver it to us. So this morning, do you need to have your sins forgiven to be reconciled to God? Well, then come to Jesus. Confess your sins to him. Call out to him and ask him to forgive you, to make you right with God. Commit your life to him, and you'll see he will do exactly that. Do you need the power to break the chains of a, of a sinful habit? Then fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn to him and continually gaze upon him, meditate upon him. And what you will see over time is that the affections of your heart will gradually but inevitably become more and more consumed with him and less and less consumed with that sinful habit. Do do you need encouragement to face a trial or a tribulation or difficulty you're going through? Then meditate on him. Fix your eyes on him. Consider what he faced so that we can be called sons and daughters of God. And when you meditate and think upon that and you bring those burdens to him each day, you will find that he's faithful and that he'll give you the grace that you need for that day and it'll get you through that day and then you'll rinse and repeat until you go through that trial. Growing up, uh, we often sang a hymn, a beautiful hymn that affirms this passage. I hope that you'll find it to be true for you this morning and really for all of 2021. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Father, we thank you that you've given us this kind of Savior. May the reality of that little song of these three verses become our reality. Lord, some of us here are discouraged because of trials and tribulations. Would you give those who are in that place eyes that would fix on you, Lord Jesus? Would you touch their hearts Would you help them see that you're there with them? And would you give them the strength to endure? Would you mold them into the men and women that you want them to be? Others, Lord, they need you as their Savior. Would you give them eyes that can see their own sin, 
and their own need for a Savior, would they call out to you today for your glory and their good, Lord Jesus. And Lord, for all of us who are tempted, perhaps it's by sin or it's just good things that become ultimate things, would you give us the power we need, the grace we need to turn our eyes and fixate on you, Jesus. May those good things stay good things and not become idolatrous. Where we have idols, would you show us, Lord Jesus, so we may repent and truly worship you in sincerity and truth. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.